listening to the Bible 126 show. Well, we are in the book of Judges, and we are going to explore this evening chapters 4 and 5. Israel in the book of Judges will illustrate the difference between religious reformation and spiritual revival. We use those terms so loosely, but they're really quite different. Reformation temporarily changes the outward conduct, while revival permanently alters the inward character. I could even say it goes for the altered life. A-L-T-A-R. Alter life. Okay. Um, now, last time we saw Ehud, uh, who uh, removed the idols and commanded the people to worship only uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or how you ever want to pronounce it, and they obeyed him while he was alive. But when he passed away and that constraint was removed, the people obeyed their own desires. And that's the key word all the way through the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. In fact, you can almost, when you read the book of Judges, be reminded of the parable that Jesus talked about in Matthew 12, where about the man who got rid of one demon and cleaned his house, and seven more, worse than the first, moved in. The empty heart is prey to every form of evil. And so we're going to continually see this same dismal pattern in the book of Judges, where when, when one of the leadership passes away, then they just return back to their old sins, and from those sins they get into servitude, and from those servitudes they get upset and pray for deliverance, never repentance, deliverance, and God will raise up a hero, and that hero will deliver them, and we'll be fine for a little while. Same pattern. So now in the, in the next two chapters, we'll take them together, we have another drama of this oppressive servitude, and the cry to the Lord for deliverance, and the raising up, not of a hero, but of a heroine. One of the judges is a woman, so that should get all the girls' attention. We're also going to see a very dramatic military trap for the bad guys. And there's also enough violence in this to make sure it stays rated R, as most of the book of Judges is, okay? Some even worse. Uh, so now let's just review a little bit the cast of characters. The villain of the piece, in a sense, is Jabin. He's the king of Hazor. He's a Canaanite tyrant. But the real guy that's the active representative of the bad guys is a guy by the name of Sisera. He's the captain of Jabin's army. In fact, Jabin doesn't get much of a mention, except he is the guy ultimately in charge, and, and uh, we'll get into that. The hero of the piece is Deborah. She's a Jewess. She's a judge with faith and courage. We'll talk a little, quite a bit about her. And her sidekick, so to speak, is Barak. He's a reluctant Israelite general. But he takes his orders from Deborah. Deborah's running things. We're also have a little side plot going on with Heber. He's a Kenite neighbor, and he's at peace with Jabin. And Yael, the wife of Heber, is going to be a keep player. This is a gal that's pretty handy with a hammer. And the keep player of the whole piece, of course, is Jehovah. In charge... He's the one in charge of the wars and of the weather. And so with that, we'll move in. So we're in Judges chapter 4. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in 
Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and he had 900 chariots of iron. For 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. See, we had, we just finished 80 years of peace under Ehud, and that's the longest period of peace recorded in the book of Judges. But his leadership, of course, came to an end when he died. We have this interesting uh, expression in verse 2 that the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. He, that's an expression that's kind of strange. Um, 200 years earlier, the Lord had freed them from the Egyptians. But when they sin, the Lord lets them get taken by their enemies. And it's expressed several times, at least four times in this book, also in 1 Samuel, that he sold them. It's just as if he, he redeemed them by freeing them. He, he the, the expression uh, is translated, he sold them into the hand of Jabin, in effect. Give them their due for a while. That's his, that was his form of punishment. Now, Canaan was a, a collection of city-states, uh, each ruled by a king. We saw that back in Joshua 12. Now, Jabin, which is probably a title more than a name, was not only the king of Hazor, we'll talk about Hazor in a minute, he was also called the king of Canaan, which implies he was not only was a king of Hazor, but he was probably the leader of a confederacy of these city-states. And uh, now Joshua had burned Hazor back there in Joshua 11, but they meanwhile had uh, rebuilt it and occupied it. Again, the pattern is repeated all through the book of Judges. They were supposed to not only conquer the land, they were supposed to wipe out the inhabitants. They didn't do that. That was a major issue and a major uh, uh, symptom of their of their failure. And uh, so Hazor, and I'll show you this on the map in a minute, was the primary stronghold. It's about eight and a half miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Sisera's base, he's the general, Fort Jabin, his base is at Harasheth Hagoim, which is the narrow gorge where the Kishon River enters the uh, Plain of Acre. It's about 10 miles northwest of Megiddo, or put it another way, it's right near Haifa up there. It's right in the region of Carmel and all that. That's where Sisera had his base. Verse 3 said, The children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had... 900 chariots. With those 900 chariots, iron chariots, he, of course, was securely in control of the land. From the text, you get the impression that the power was really with the general more than his boss. Yes, Jabin was king, but really Sisera is the guy calling the shots. Uh, he's the guy that had the power. Chapter 5 is a celebration of the victory that we're going to see. In that celebration of victory, Jabin isn't even mentioned. Sisera was really viewed as the, as the target here. But in verse 3, again, once again, the, the Israel cries out to God, not to forgive their sin, but to relieve their suffering. There's a difference. How often we do that? We pray for what we think we need, when what we really need is to repent. And the rest will follow. Now, comfort, rather than cleansing, simply sows the seed of selfishness. And it will produce a bitter harvest. In contrast to this, remember David's prayer in Psalm 51, when he repented of his Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That should be our prayer. And But we reach for the symptom rather than the cause. Verse 4, And Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, she judged Israel at that time. By the way, the name Deborah means honeybee. You say, what's that got to do with anything? Well, let's decide by learning something about honeybees. The wax in a beehive is heat-resistant up to 140 degrees. But at 141 degrees, it starts to melt and threatens to destroy the whole hive. And when it gets to be 141 degrees, all the bees cluster and flutter their wings at 190 times a second. That's over 11,000 
times a minute. So they're industrious. Bees are industrious. A bee is a symptom of an industry. They're also discerning the antenna that they have contains over two to 3,000 plates through which they identify the proper flower from which to get the nectar. So they're discerning. And the third thing is they're known for is the sweetness of the honey, right? And that's exactly what Deborah was. She had the same three characteristics. She was very industrious, she was discerning, and she was sweet. So I just thought I'd build that case on a good scientific basis. All right. She certainly was a courageous woman. We'll try to understand as we go here. It was a... An act of grace that she was a judge, but it was also an act of humiliation to the Jews because they were a male-dominated society wanting only mature male leadership. In fact, in Isaiah 3, verse 12, as an indictment of that period, it said, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. See, in in the Hebrew mind, that's that's a derogatory thing. So Deborah is a great gal, she does a great job, but in a sense, it's also uh, certainly an evidence that the uh, absence of adequate male leadership. We'll see how Barak does here shortly himself. But anyway, verse 5, And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Her court then was about roughly nine miles north of Jerusalem. There's two little towns up there, Bethel and Ramah, and it's roughly between them that she set up her court. And uh, But she was both a judge and a prophetess. But she saw herself as a mother. Not the mother, not the mother of Israel. Some people misunderstand that phrase. She's just a mother, but she's doing a great job. And there are other prophetesses in the Bible, by the way. One of your assignments for homework could be, okay, find eight others. You'll think of Miriam, Moses' sister, Huldah, the prophetess in Second Kings, Noadiah in uh, Nehemiah 6, Anna in Luke 2, you may recall, and there are four daughters of Phillips who are listed as prophetesses. So that's, that's at least together, all together, about nine. Maybe you can find some more. Okay, in verse 6, uh, and she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? We're going to look at a map here in a minute, but uh, I'll give you a little better geographical thing. But this place that he is from, Kadesh, in the area of Naphtali, is up north, up in the Galilee. It's in fact just uh, on the south end, just on the southwest end of the valley, about a mile from the lake. That's where Barak is from, and he's the hero, one of the heroes of the piece. But it's also the site of a character by the name of Heber we're going to talk about. I want you to notice they're both from the same geography. That'll be helpful as we go further. You're going to discover that Heber is a collaborator. He gives some important intelligence to their enemies because he can tell what they're about to do, and so he tips off uh, Sisera, and Sisera musters his army, not realizing what he's really doing is walking into a trap. To give you a rough feeling, this is by way of review from previous studies, but the region of Israel, the, 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 the nation, was divided by tribes in Joshua. And Asher and Naphtali were up north, Asher along the coast, Naphtali just north of the Sea of Galilee. To the west of the Sea of Galilee, we had Zebulun. Just to the southwest, we have Issachar. The tribe of Manasseh split itself half east of the Jordan, half west. We often see in the scripture the half-tribe of Manasseh. In fact, there's three tribes that stayed east of the Jordan, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. And they're going to be, they're going to pass on what's coming on. When, when there's a call for help, they, on the other side of the Jordan, they figure it's, I guess they figure it's your guy's problem. 
By moving south from the Sea of Galilee, got Issachar, Manasseh, and then Ephraim, roughly midway, say, between uh, uh, the Dead Sea and, and uh, Galilee, but to the west, is a very large area, and often is used idiomatically for the whole northern group, by the way. Benjamin is just north of Judah, and, and it's right on the border between those two that Jerusalem lies. Dan had a place way up north that they lost control of, so they also took a spot near the ocean there on the, on the west side. And, of course, Simeon is south of Judah, but really subsumed by Judah, in a sense. And they get along great, and they're usually doing things together. Well, let's take a look at the strategic setting that we're facing here. Jabin's Canaanite stronghold is at Hazor, which is just, uh, call it uh, eight, nine miles uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jabin, the Canaanite king, is headquartered. Sisera's base is along the coast, just roughly where Haifa is today place called Herosheth, and that's the, where Sisera, the, the Kenite general, hangs out. Deborah's court was down south between Bethel and Ramah, uh, just a few miles north of Jerusalem. Now, Heber, the Kenite, he's going to have a tent at Kadesh that we're going to watch. I want you to notice that's the same place that Barak comes from, in the general region of Naphtali, but in a place called Kadesh. And then we have... Um, Mount Tabor, and that's going to the pivot of the whole thing. There is a mountain. Mount Tabor is a uh, rises to about uh, 1,300 feet. Uh, it's strategically located at the juncture of the tribal areas of Naphtali, Zebulun, and Issachar. It's in the northeast part of the uh, the Jezreel Valley, and it's not far from the Kishon Valley. The, the Kishon River is just to the west. The Kishon River starts at Haifa and swings down right by Megiddo. It's, it, it goes right down the Jezreel Valley, if you will. In general, it's a very safe place to attack because this is the dry season. So Sisera has 900 iron chariots along with a very mighty army. But the Mount Tabor is a mountain, and it's a relatively safe place from which to attack the chariots. Chariots only have, have mobility on the plain, not on the mountains. And so that's part of the strategy. Verse 7 says, I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of the Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. That's what God is revealing through Deborah to Barak. She's calling him to arms. Through Deborah, God is telling Barak to assemble and lead an army. Now, by the way, understand there wasn't an Israeli army. Under Joshua, they had an army and they conquered the land. They're under subjection to the Canaanites. They're not allowed to make weapons. They confiscate all the weapons. All they had was what they could improvise. And these they have to just get volunteers. They're, they're, this, this is a rebellion, in effect. And so what Deborah is asking Barak to do is assemble 10,000 and get them up to Mount Tabor because God is going to deliver these guys to us. That's a gutsy play. You've got the entrenched power, well-armed, been running things for a few decades, and you're going to take up arms against them without a trained army, without serious weapons, and the rest of it. But you had one thing, they had one thing going for them. That's the Lord. <laughs> so verse 8, Brock said unto her, I, I, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. Gee, was a guy. <laughs> the word Barak, his name means lightning. But I would call, I think it stands for barracks. <laughs> He's a general that wants to stay in the barracks. That's why they call him Barak. No, not really. I'm just kidding. But uh, he was from Naphtali, and he was one of the tribes that would send volunteers to, to the battlefield. But his hesitation here, by the way, is not unprecedented. 
Abraham did that. God told him to get out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and all he did is move up river until his dad died. Only Stephen brings that out in Acts 7 to really understand what was going on there. And Moses, remember, he hesitated, Exodus 3. Gideon, we'll find in, the, in chapter 6, is going to hesitate. And Jeremiah and Jeremiah 1, same thing. So hesitation is not unprecedented. Now the question that sort of we wonder, is this unbelief? Is that he lacks confidence? Is this why he's saying? Or is it that he wants Deborah along in case he needs a word from the Lord en route? See, Deborah is his connection to the word of the Lord. So um, that's a possibility. It's a precaution perhaps. We know it was not out of God's will because Deborah agreed to go. And furthermore, when you get to Hebrews, the New Testament, Barak is listed among the heroes of faith. So yes, he hesitated, and you can make something of that if you like. We don't really know. But he displayed incredible courage, and they accomplished incredible stuff. Because Deborah says in verse 9, And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, but for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And by the way, she's not talking about herself. Another little surprise coming. At first you think, gee, she's, you know, she'll go along because she'll get the glory. No, no, it's not her we're talking about, it'll turn out. So Deborah rose and went to Barak, with, uh, with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And he went up with them, 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with them. So he's rallying uh, a group. Now he got 10,000 from his own tribe, Naphtali, and we'll see more about that. Later volunteers from Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, the west part of Manasseh, and Issachar will join. So he'll end up having a total of 40,000 guys. And it's probable that the 10,000 are going to use to lure Sisera in the trap, and the other 30 then are going to, are going to clobber him. And uh, the tribes that did not uh, choose to join this uh, fray were Reuben, Dan, Asher, and Manasseh East. And uh, Now, weapons, of course, were scarce in Israel, because I think I, we pointed that out last time. The, their enemies always confiscated all the weapons. They didn't have swords or shields or all the usual kinds of military hardware. They had whatever a farmer might have. There was no standing army. These are all volunteers, rag, a ragtag group, I, I would imagine. But for Deborah and Barak, this is an incredible act of faith. And uh, they were depending on God's promise. That's the key here to this whole thing. You can talk about the tactics and what they did, and it's all very clever, and yet that's not the issue. The issue is that God was God told them to do this, they were trusting God, and they had some exciting action. So get to verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite. The Kenites were remote relatives of Moses. But Heber and his family had chosen to camp right in the middle of Israel, but they were collaborators with their um, oppressors. Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites, pitched his tent unto the plain of Zanaim, which is by Kadesh. So he's near, not in, but near Kadesh, where Barak is from. And he's got a tent there, and he's got people, but he has, we'll find later in one of the later verses, he is at peace with Jabin. That is, he has made his peace. It's sort of, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the French that made peace with Hitler, kind of thing, if you will, when they conquered Paris, whatever, if you want to make, draw analogies. Um, in any case, uh, we first meet the Kenites back in chapter 1, verse six, uh, 16, I mean, and, uh, and we discover that, that they were distant relatives of Moses. Okay, we get to verse 12. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinuam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. So he tips off Sisera, the enemy general, 
that Barak is up to something, that Barak is mustering a rebel group up at Mount Tabor. It seems kind of strange that, that uh, Heber would separate from, from his own people who worshipped Jehovah uh, and collaborate with idolatrous tyrants like, uh, like uh, Jabin and Sisera. But strangely enough, even this treachery is part of God's plan. Because by, Heber doesn't realize this, but by, by him tipping off Sisera, Sisera is going to go ahead and attack Mount Tabor. And that's exactly what God wanted him to do, for reasons you'll see. And this whole point will be nailed down in a few more verses. But let's get to verse 13. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Heresheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Gishon. Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. Now notice they've got 30,000 in reserve. We'll come to that. But Barak and 10,000 are coming down from the mountain. The Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. <laughs> Here's a guy that was depending on his arms that now was depending on his feet. But in any case, uh, what also is going to be explained here shortly is the Lord also sent a fierce rainstorm that would make the Kishon River and that whole region turn the whole battlefield into a sea of mud. We'll see that in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 20 through 22, when they're celebrating their victory, they'll detail some of the things that happened here. By the way, the storm is really weird. I'll come back to that. This word discomfited is hamam in the Hebrew. It means to move noisily, confuse, make a noise, discomfort, break, consume, crush, destroy, trouble, vex. It implies that there's something supernatural going on. They weren't just, they were panicked, but the Lord drove them to panic. And this is exactly what God did to the Pharaoh's charioteers, if you may remember when they were crossing the Red Sea. That same word is used there. And uh, it also is the word that they will do to the Philistines later on in, in 1 Samuel 7. But what you need to understand is these guys were not stupid. They knew that this was the dry season. They'd never take those chariots into a marshy area in anything other than a dry season. But they're taking the chariots, which tells you it's a dry season, but that what they weren't expecting is this unseasonable, supernatural rainfall. A torrent of rain that turns the whole place into mud and, of course, makes their chariots worse than useless. It's also kind of interesting because who did the Canaanites worship? Anyone? Baal. And who is Baal is the god of storms. In fact, it's in this very region that we're going to see later, a guy by the name of Elijah is going to challenge the priests of Baal, and he slaughters them as a result of that, that big showdown up in Mount Carmel. But uh, So understand, you've got these Canaanites who are very superstitious. Baal's the god of storms, and this storm is going to end up wiping them out. They, no wonder they're panicked. They really drove to panic. Verse 16. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harasheth of the Gentiles and all the host of Sisera. All the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword and there was not a man left. And so, let's see, do I have my map here? Yeah, so here we go. We, took, we looked at this tactical position a minute ago. 
You know, the Canaanite stronghold is Hazor, Sisera's base is Harasheth, Deborah's court down south, Heber, the Canaanite's tent, and then uh, Mount Tabor right in the middle. To make this look a little clearer, we're going to go ex- ex- blow this part of the map up. There we go. And take a look at this battle, how it goes here. Now, first thing that happens is Barak musters 10,000 at Mount Tabor. Now, Tabor is right there in the middle, about 1,300 foot peak there. 30,000 more will join him, but we're going to focus on the 10,000 first. Now Heber from Kadesh goes over to Harasheth and tips off Sisera that Barak's up to something. And so what is Sisera's army, 900 chariots? They come down the, the Jezreel Valley and go to meet this attack from, the, from Mount Tabor. But what they weren't counting on, <laughs> unseasonal floods caused that whole valley to turn into a marshland, mud, and uh, Obviously, the chariots are a liability rather than an asset. At this point, the other 30,000 that they didn't realize were also mustered come around down from that mount, and they clobber uh, Sisera's army. They route them out completely. Of course, when the battle is uh, lost, the wisest thing to do is run for your life, which is exactly what uh, our friend uh, Sisera does. He flees the battle scene. He's probably heading up to Hazor, up in northern Galilee. That's speculative, but that's probably where he's trying to go because he's trying to get out of there, obviously, and head to where the stronghold of Jabin is. But on the way there, he stops nearby Kadesh because he knows, of course, that there's this guy by the name of uh, Heber that is a uh, uh, an ally of him, in effect. So Habiat Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. There was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. In other words, Sisera knows that Heber is a friend. He's in flight, so he gets to his camp, but he doesn't go to Heber's tent. He goes to his wife's tent, Yale's tent. And Yale went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. She gives him uh, rest. He's running for his life. So he's looking for probably a city of refuge, but it's not for him. And, uh, he, and so he managed to get near the Oak of Zananim and on the border of Naphtali and about six miles east of uh, Tabor. There's the site of Heber's tents. And uh, so we get to verse 18. Yale went out to meet Sisera and said, Turn in, my lord, and so on. See, in that culture, no man except a husband could enter the wife's tent under penalty of death. So he has already earned the penalty of death, incidentally, as we watch what's going on here. He's brought himself under a death penalty, in effect. Verse 19, And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. And for a number of other references, we think it was probably buttermilk, but that's not a big deal one way or the other. Now, Sisera had no reason to suspect danger. Heber's clan was friendly. Uh, Yael had shown hospitality and kindness. No pursuing Israelite soldier would dare enter a wife's tent. So he's confident that he had a dependable ally and that he, where he could rest in peace. And indeed he will before it's over. Okay? So we go to verse 20. He said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be if when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here? Thou shalt say, No. That was his first mistake, because that tips off Yael that he's on the run, and that means the battle was lost. 
See, why else is he doing? She realizes he is on, he's on the lamb. He's, he's, he's trying to hide. Now, if she protected Sisera, she would be in trouble with her own people, her own relatives, the Israelites. Anyone chasing Sisera wouldn't be satisfied until the captain was dead. So we get to verse 21. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail, or, or tent spike, if you will, from the tent and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly unto him, and she smote the nail into his temples and fastened it to the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. And so he died. So this gal was, uh, you know, it's important when you have a point to make to know how to drive it home with vigor. Uh, it's called nailing down the problem, right? In the Eastern cultures, nomadic cultures, the women are the ones that put up and took down the tents. That was one of the things they, so they, they knew how to handle both the tackle and the hammer and so forth. And what Sisera didn't know, if you may recall back in verse 9, that God predicted that a woman would take his life. And when you read that first, you well, you're probably talking about Deborah. No, it's talking about Yale. Said he was fast asleep. I, I, I can't, you know, you always sort of look for puns. Um, uh, anyone who's been in the Navy understands what making something fast means. Uh, one of the plebe questions, when the naval captain, one of the plebes, you have to ask him, what's the fastest ship in the Navy? And the answer to that trick question is the Reina Mercedes, which was a war prize that was, it was a barracks ship for the, the mess stewards, but it was, it had been fast for something like 85 years. It had been fast for the better part of a century. Well, here we have, uh, uh, Cicero fast asleep, if I can pun that, but let's go on. Verse 22, and behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said, Hey, guess what I found? No, she said, she came out to him and said unto him, Come and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came in under a tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. Now, one of the questions you can sort of ponder a little bit, should we bless or blame Yael? She invited Sisera into her tent, treated him kindly, told him not to be afraid. So she was deceitful. The Kenites were at peace with Jabin, so she violated a treaty. She gave Sisera the impression that she would guard the door, so she broke a promise. She killed a defenseless man who was under her protection, so she's a murderess. And yet, we'll discover in the next chapter, Deborah in, her, in the Song of Deborah, the celebration thing, she says, Blessed above women shall Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. Blessed shall he, she be above women in the tent. See, what you have to do is also keep in mind the terrible bondage because of Jabin and Sisera, the mistreatment of the Jews for years. And if the Canaanites had won the battle, hundreds of Jewish girls would have been captured and raped. There was a war going on. We need to recognize that. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan. Notice it's king of Canaan, not just Hazor. So he's the king of the confederacy. Before the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So that broke the stronghold, and obviously there's more work to do, but that uh, on it goes. Now, what happens in chapter 5, which sort of goes with this, is like a, an appendix, uh, is it's a song. It's called the Song of Deborah. And the writer shifts from prose, narrative prose, uh, to jubilant poetry. 
And there are lots of other examples in the Bible of this sort of thing. In Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, 2 Samuel 1, and Psalm 18, a couple of places. Now, from the personal pronouns, you'll notice if you watch for uh, this in chapter 5, you'll discover that uh, in chapter verses 7, 9, 13, the personal pronouns, it appears that this was Deborah's Song of Victory. But Barak also uh, joins him in the celebration. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. See, they did all this with volunteers, guy, though. You realize that. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. That's the hero. The hero isn't Deborah Barak, really. It's God. He called the shots. He performed the action in response to their prayer. And she goes on, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped and the clouds also dropped water and the mountains melted before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were unoccupied and the travelers walked through byways. And what that's referring to, of course, is uh, the, the previous remarks had to do with previous victories. God is just a God of victory and he makes some allusions from the past. And the same God that gave victories in the past will give them again. But speaking of Shamgar, remember that was the guy we read about last in the last session. She points out that outside the walled villages and on the roadways, everything was at a standstill because of the oppression. You couldn't go out there; it was too dangerous. So that's what she, that's what, that's the allusion here is to to the uh, oppression. Verse seven: The inhabitants of the villages ceased, and they ceased in Israel until that I Deborah arose, that I arose, a mother in Israel. That's funny how many commentators miss this, they, you know, as if she's calling herself the mother of Israel. No, she's a mother in Israel. She's just a mother, but she rose to the occasion. Praise God. Then she indicts their own people. They chose new gods. Then was war in the gates, and there was a shield or a spear seen among 40,000 Israel. My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless you, the Lord. The governors, the rulers, the nobles helped they helped recruit. There's a whole set of activities that are glossed over here, obviously. The enemy had taken over because they had turned to false gods, but in rallying to all this, they got recruits and so forth. And uh, in fact, in verse 10, Speak ye that ride on white asses, that means the nobles, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. They that are delivered from the noise of the archers and the places of drawing water, there, sh- there shall they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord, even the righteous act toward the inhabitants of his villages in Israel. Then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. So this is, the streets are safe again, and they're celebrating. And so we get to verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. Then he made him that remaineth have dominion over the nobles among the people, and the Lord made me have dominion over the mighty. Out of Ephraim was there a root of them against Amalek. After thee, Benjamin, among thy people, out of Machir came down governors, and out of Zebulun they that handled the pen of the writer. These are all this referring to the recruiters taking. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar, and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley for the divisions of Reuben. <laughs> now Reuben got a problem. He said, for the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. Why abodest thou among the sheepfolds to hear the bleedings of the flocks? For the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of the heart. In other words, he didn't go. He worried about it and didn't go. He declined. He, he thanks, but for the glory and honor, but I'd rather pass, huh? 
Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode on his breaches. These are people that didn't help, you see. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. So those are the, see, they, they're really the heroes in all this thing here. The kings came and fought, and then fought the kings of Canaan and Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. Tanakh is a town also right down the We had Megiddo, and, and, and Tanakh is right there at the base of the Kishon River. It's all along that valley between uh, just southeast of Haifa. Kings came and fought, and they fought the kings of Canaan and Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. They fought from, oh, they fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. <laughs> well, this is a one of those problem verses. Most commentators dismiss this verse as just poetic language. You know, stars in their courses fought. This is just you know, the poet getting carried away. Maybe, maybe. I personally feel that it's very hazardous to underestimate the literalness of the Scripture. And I, uh, I point you to Joshua chapter 10, where Joshua commands the sun to stand still. Now there it's very clear that something happened. It didn't go down for a whole day, you know, almost a whole day. You know, yeah, and that's a real big problem for a lot of people. And I won't get into that here because it will derail the rest of the study, but I encourage you... <laughs> to take a look at either our commentary on Joshua or take a look at Signs in the Heavens, our briefing pack, where we talk about what scientists believe they've discovered about the planet Earth at that time. All calendars changed in 701 B.C. And there, there are many, uh, there's some people who teach celestial mechanics at Harvard. They, they've also pointed, they discovered a thing called orbital resonance. And they believe that the orbit of Mars and Earth were resonant one time. Earth had 360 days, Mars 720. They were in synchronism. But that also had near passbys, which causes energy transfers. And every 104 years, there were catastrophes on the planet Earth. And they're recorded in the, in the memory of man. And, uh, it sounds weird at first. But um, the near passbys of Mars is what the whole thing was based on. And uh, strangely enough, they found a confirmation of that whole theory. Of all places in the writings of Jonathan Swift. Jonathan Swift writes what we think of as children's stories, what they really were in that day. He was a, he was a satirist. They were political satires on London, written by an Irish critic. And uh, they were designed to be uh, political documents. But and we all know the voyage of Lilliput, which is where Gulliver, this you know fanciful guy, goes to the land of little people. The third voyage of Gulliver, he goes to a place called Laputa. In Laputa, the astronomers brag that they know about the two moons of Mars, and the guys in London don't. What makes that passage so strange? It mentions the periods and the rotations of these two moons to an accuracy of better than less than an error of less than twenty percent, and one of them is going backwards. It's the only one thing in the solar system is going backwards. So what makes that so strange is you can't see the two moons of Mars with anything but an outstanding telescope. The astronomers didn't know there were two moons of Mars in the days of Jonathan Swift. It wasn't until Asaph Hall, 151 years later, that the two moons of Mars were discovered because he had a brand new telescope in the U.S. Naval Observatory. Now, what makes that strange is, well, how did Jonathan Swift know that? Did he just make a guess? Some people say, hardly. That's too absurd. Did he really know there were two moons of Mars? Probably not. He was a friend of Herschel and the contemporary astronomers. They didn't know anything about two moons of Mars. 
The conjecture is that what Jonathan Swift discovered was some documents that talked about this that he probably thought were fanciful and he used them to embroider his parody, not realizing that what he was reading was an eyewitness account. Because the only way you could see the two moons of Mars, see they have a, one's only eight miles across and they're almost black. They have an albedo of less than three percent, a reflectivity of less than three percent. And so the point is anyway, that proves that there was 150, there was a time when Mars passed close enough to the Earth that you could see the two moons of Mars with the naked eye. When you go through all that, it's an intriguing corroboration of some of these conjectures. The point is, if you start to get into some of this, you begin to realize that some of these expressions in the Scripture may not be as figurative as many commentators suggest. Now, I'm not suggesting this. I have no evidence that the phrase here in, in this verse, is in verse 20 of chapter 5, is, is some kind of literal hint. And yet at the same time, I'd be very cautious before I dismiss it because uh, we, don't know what, we don't know what factors contributed to this flood in that region. It, didn't, it may have just been a big flood, and that's fine, or maybe some, may have been something more than that. There are writers, Don Patton and others, that believe that the planet Mars had a great deal to do with Noah's flood. That was a whole, that's a whole other story. Anyway, let's go on. It says, The river Kishon swept them away, that ancient river, the river Kishon. O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. And by the way, this is the same place that Elijah slaughtered the priests of Baal in uh, 1 Kings 18, by the way. So you can read that as a little background. Then were the horse hoofs broken by the means of the prancings and the prancings of the mighty ones. Curse ye, Meraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Notice here, it's not Deborah that's cursing this town. She's quoting the angel of the Lord, cursing it because they didn't come to help. This is one of the cities that uh, declined to be part of the action. And notice, not help Israel, help the Lord. That's interesting. That's interesting. Blessed above all women shall Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. So that at least is Deborah's comment on the ethics and proper conduct of that, the wife of Heber. He asked water and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in the lordly dish. That's why we think it's buttermilk, which was very common in the East. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera and smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, and lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. Some people fancy a contradictions here other than, he doesn't say he died immediately. It sounds like he staggered and fought and finally yielded. But who knows? The poetry here shifts to the mother of Sisera. We're going to see the pathos of a fallen general amplified through some irony, an ironic description of an awaiting mother clinging to the hopeful excuses of his delay. The mother of Sisera looked out at a window and cried through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariots? Her wise ladies answered and said, Yea, he returned to answer to herself. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two? That's interesting. To Sisera, a prey of divers colors, a prey of divers colors of needlework, of divers colors of needlework on both sides, meet for the necks of them that take the spoil. She's expecting to come with victory. And it concludes, And so let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. Let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might, 
And the land had rest for 40 years. And so ends this rather dramatic chapter, the book of Judges. Now next time, you can prepare by reading chapters 6 through 8. We won't take all chapters next time, but that's the, that section, 6, 7, and 8, is uh, the story of Gideon, God's man in Manasseh. The story of Gideon is the longest episode in the book of Judges. Very, very colorful thing, where he has 32,000, whatever the number was, and he, the Lord downsizes his group to 300, and he wins. Very dramatic time, very interesting, interesting story. Book of Judges. Again, standing back a bit, the book of Judges is characterized by four conditions. There was no king in Israel. That's the symptom of lack of leadership. No king in Israel. Secondly, the, the ethics were wrong. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. The third thing was that the, um, there was an utter disregard of the Word of God. And the fourth thing was that they were in bondage, in servitude, because of all that. And uh, the suggestion I want you to consider as you uh, review uh, the book and continue looking forward, the message, the question I have to you is, is that characteristic of us today? The world today, there's no king in Israel. The king is coming. The king is coming, but there's no king in Israel. Secondly, every man is doing right what's in his own eyes. That's relativism. That's the ethic of the land. You have your truth, I have mine. Relativism. You can do whatever it's right. You know, you, if it feels good, do it. I mean, you know, and you can see where it's taking society and all its sectors. The third thing was ignorance of the, the Word of God. If, if they had been doing what the law told them to do, the law required the priests to read the book of Deuteronomy on the Feast of Tabernacles every sabbatical year. Every seven years, the Feast of Tabernacles, they were to read publicly to the nation the book of Deuteronomy. If they had done that, they would understand that they're responsible to teach their children the ways of God in chapter 6 and so on. Chapter 7, God commits himself to uh, wipe out all their enemies, that they are to wipe out all their enemies, not spare them. If, if they had read the Word of God, they wouldn't be in the predicament, and took it seriously, they wouldn't be in the predicament they're in. And they're, they're in bondage, and so are we. The materialism, and you make the list, you know, it's pretty straightforward. And covetousness is idolatry, the Scripture tells us. So there's very strange, it's very strange to discover that the book of Judges is a book of the Old Testament tailored for you and I in our day today. We understand it. And yes, here and there where there's a cry, God will raise up leadership to repair the situation. But as soon as that repair is made and we revert back to our old ways, we're right back in the soup again. Tragically, the narrative of our personal lives, if we don't you know, have an inward change, not just an outward change. It's also the tragedy of many Christian groups and communities where they uh, petition the Lord, he'll raise up local leadership to try to repair it. But then the question is, what's next? What's happened in the United States since 911? You know, we have certainly a rise of nationalism, that's exciting. But how long will it be for the liberals and the carpers and quibblers to, to water all that down? We'll see. But boy, there's an openness in America, like I haven't seen in 50 years in my own Christian walk. So that's exciting. We have an opportunity. I think that opportunity has a limited time. I don't know how long it'll be. But we need to start with ourselves, but then we need to pray for a revival, beginning with ourselves and, and see what God is going to do, see if he'll bless us 
with the movement of the Spirit in this country. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you that you're, you are a God that hears. And Father, we would ask that you would hear our prayer, Father, as we come, come before your throne with confessing our own sins, Father, for they are many. Especially, Father, our sins of ingratitude for all that you've done for us, our sins of presumption as we just presume upon your grace and your mercy. Oh, Father, we, we bring that before your throne knowing that you are faithful and just if we confess our sins to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we seek that cleansing that we might be more effective vessels for you, Father. We do pray, Father, that you would reveal your truths as we go through the book of Judges, Father. Help us to understand our times. Help us to understand the, the need for leadership, Father in our own hearts, that you would be the leader, in our own lives, our own families. And help us, Father, to hold up and support the leaders you have raised up. We pray, Father, that you would add your special blessing at the nation's capital to the leadership there, President Bush and staff, the pressures they're on, the decisions they have to make. We pray, Father, that you would just overrule the advice he's getting, that, it may, that he might hear your, vo- your words, your voice, Father. We do indeed pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Father, because we know as we pray for that, we're praying for the king of the Jews to come and take over. We do seek him so much, Father. You've told us, Father, pray thy kingdom come. Well, we do pray that, Father. We do pray for your kingdom to be established as you have ordained it in the Old and New Testaments. We just look for that, Father. But in the meantime, Father, we pray that you would sharpen our understanding that we might more fully appreciate what it is you would have of each of us in the days that remain. We do pray, Father, that you would give us your vision. Let us know your heart, Father. Equip us, strengthen us, focus us, Father, that we might make the most of the opportunities before us for the kingdom. As we right now commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.